Welcome to the Boston Society of the New Jerusalem's Church on the Hill podcast. If you like it, consider joining us at 140 Bowden Street in Boston for more, or visit us on the web at churchonthehillboston.org. Good morning. Today we are uh, dealing with the scripture from Matthew. Uh, book 25 and verses 14 to 30. For it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of these slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came. Came forward saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you did not scatter seeds. So I was afraid, and I went, and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master replied, you wicked and and, and lazy slave, you knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow, and gather where I did not scatter. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And on my return, I would have received what was my own with interest. So the talent taken from him and give it to the one with the 10 talents. But to all those who have more, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But for those who have nothing, 
even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the utter darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. For to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. My assumption is this is not the gospel we like to hear. My assumption is that when we, when we hear the words of Jesus in Scripture, we want to hear the what you do unto the least of my people you do unto me language, right? That's the language we like to hear. The funny thing is, that quote comes at the end of this chapter. This says almost exactly the opposite in some ways. It does if we lose sight of what this story is. If you are thinking about money and possessions, if you are thinking that this is somehow a statement about the things that you have, then you're going to be confused. The two sections are talking about different things. This chapter in the book of Matthew, believe it or not, is not about investing. One could even argue if that comment in the passage about putting your money in the bank and collecting interest. There's debate amongst religious scholars if that comment itself is actually encouraging them to do something which is against Jewish law. How do you get money from interest? By lending. In Jewish law, it was against the law to lend in that way. There is question about many of these things. But if you look at it in a different way, that this is not about raising money, that something else is happening. By the way, anyone here get a 100% return on their investments? We would all be in trouble if this chapter was about money. Even the wealthiest among us, I'm guessing, don't get 100% investment on their money. The chapter in Matthew is about the Lord going away and the disciples being alone and waiting for his return. That's what this chapter is about. How do you, as a person of faith, this is not about the person who is not a Christian, how do you, as a person of faith, act when God is not looking? The chapter ends with that statement of compassion about how we treat other people. This is not about how we treat other people. This is about how we treat God. Our story today is in the middle of the chapter. The first one, anyone remember what we talked about last week? Do you remember what we talked about last week? <laughs> Justice, the return of God who has oil in their lamps. This one isn't 
are you paying attention? This one is what did you do? It's easy for us to get confused about money. After all, it uses the word talent. And I, I thought to myself, you know, if I'm going to start talking about money, I should understand how much a talent is. And you want to know something? No one has a clue in this passage what a talent is worth. A talent was 75 pounds of gold in Hebrew law. It's a lot. Be something like one point something million in modern currency. But they say specifically a talent in this situation, no one knows exactly what it was at that time because they were using Roman money and Roman money did not have talents. Needless to say, this is enough money that you would be set for life. But it's not about money. These people are not asked to live off of this. They do not take their wages from this. What we know is that this story, God is the master who is leaving, and he is leaving his disciples something in trust. When the Lord leaves, does he leave a checkbook to his disciples? Anyone read that in scripture? I'm guessing not. Depending on your concept of eschatology, that's a big word. Depending on your concept of what it means for the Lord to return, do you think he's going to come and ask you for your bank account numbers? Does God need your money? No. For Swedenborg, he doesn't believe that God is returning at some later time. He believes that God is actually returning in our lives right now, the degree to which we are good disciples. The people in this story do not symbolize, and their money does not symbolize what we oftentimes think. The people in this story actually symbolize not whether or not one of you is better than the other. It symbolizes your choices, whether or not an aspect of what you are willing to love. Is there an aspect in the way you love that is better than another? The money is the power of love. Money is kind of like a battery. Have you ever thought about it like that? Most people don't. You work. That's effort. You get paid in money. That effort gets stored into a currency. Then you take that currency in order to cash in your effort at a different location. Does that make sense? The person who farms takes the, let's pick a good, the cab driver's effort driving and exchanges his labor of raising crops for that person's labor of driving. It is stored energy. So the coins in the story are about our ability to love. Well, about our ability to love if we use them wisely. Isn't that what the story is about? What happens when we take a coin and we bury it in the ground? What happens when we take our love and say, I am too scared of the world and punishment to do anything with the love that I have. We bury it. It never sees the light of day. If we have a little bit of love, and again, we don't have to have a great amount, but even the person who had two talents 
went out in the world, and they say engaged in trade. They love, and through their loving, they receive love, and they double. The person with five does the same thing, doubles their love. And what Swedenborg says about this is it's a statement about exactly how we love. We had a responsive affirmation today. I don't know if anyone paid attention to responsive affirmation. Some people go to church and don't pay attention to what they actually read. But in, in that responsive affirmation, there's a statement. Our family, our community, and our country and the nations of the world are larger neighbors. Other churches, our church, other churches, all religions are still larger neighbors. And then greater yet is the Lord's kingdom in heaven. This is a statement about going from a small group of love to loving all of creation. Now, I'm not going to attack married people here, but you might think it. It is easy to love your spouse. Ideally, your spouse and you engage in a relationship because you have mutual interests. As you go through that relationship over time, what happens? You develop roles within the relationship. One person's the cooker. One person's the person who gives bath to the kids. One person's the clothes washer. One person's the lawnmower, so forth and so on. There's, there's an exchange. You do things together. You feel close to them. You, you have experiences and things that you love and fond memories. It's easy to love someone who helps you. Patriotism is a larger neighbor. Some can say it's really easy to love your country, and we do it blindly to some degree. But here's the thing that I have that always makes me a little unsettled. I know lots of people who are patriots, and they hate to pay their taxes. I don't get it. That's patriotism, but it's a one-way relationship. It's patriotism saying, I like my country because of either an idea or a concept or that people are willing to protect my security, but I'm not willing to contribute my love and my effort to my nation. Loving your country is paying your taxes. Sounds kind of weird. We don't hear that often. We often, I love my country, but I hate my taxes. Now, I'm a volunteer fireman. Those taxes go to buy fire trucks even if you're a volunteer. That tax money does lots of good in the world. Now, here's one of the things. I, I'm not just, someone might say, oh, you're just, the Bible isn't true or Swedenborg isn't right. So I, I like real-world examples around this sort of thing. Do anyone know who John Nash is? Anybody who watched movies a few years ago would know who John Nash was. Nash is. Anyone who likes economics would really know who John Nash is because he changed economics. John Nash came up with something called what is exactly the Nash I don't know, Nash principle, Nash I have it here in my notes. There he is. The Nash equilibrium. Isn't that fun, the term? Get a little, ec a little economics lesson today. The Nash equilibrium is basically People are better off 
when they work together. That sounds like a no-brainer, right? When we cooperate, people are better off. But here's the problem. An individual is not better off. Does that make sense? So we can burn all the coal in the world if we want to get rich, and one person will get rich and have a good life. Meanwhile, anybody who lives at one foot above sea level will be killed or will lose their homes. One person is not better off. Their wealth is at risk. But if they work together, everyone's lives are better off. This concept is used all the time in trying to have economists help transform our country. This is a real word exa world example of if we can actually love our enemy, if we can love the person who is not our family member, who is not our countryman, but love the person who would do us harm, all of creation would be better. But we don't like helping our enemies. What would it mean for us to have a department of peace and unity versus a department of war and defense? What would it mean for us to ask the question, what would it mean for us to support North Korea versus stop North Korea? What would it mean to say we can be the best in the world by acknowledging that the best is about being a servant and not about being wealthier? Our country currently defines the concept of best by Gross, gross national product, by economic influence, by so many other things. What if it defined best by saying we are the most willing to help and love one another? Now it's easy to pick on the country. What would it mean for your lives if you lived that way? Maybe some of us do. Burying our talent in the ground means that we are loving nobody but ourselves. We are trying to protect ourselves. We need to love not just our neighbor, but love in such a way that we are loving more people than we can conceive that we are loving. That might seem difficult. We have choices on, again, whether or not we pay our taxes. Sometimes we have choices, sometimes we don't. Um, we have choices on whether or not we report income. We have choices on whether or not when we vote, we vote for what is good for everyone. There are things we have like that, but we also have another time. Every time we throw a piece of litter on the ground, that's a question of who do we love more. Every time we make our choice, and as a church we're trying to stop this, of using disposable eating, 500,000 straws a day are thrown away. 500,000 straws a day are thrown away. That's a lot of straws. Maybe a decision to love our earth 
isn't to stop using straws. It's certainly to stop using paper plates. Every day we are confronted with opportunities where we could make our lives a little bit more difficult for the common good. And I challenge each of us to think about this story at that moment on whether or not we are asking, are we spending the effort to do what we can for the betterment of the world, for the betterment of our neighbor, or are we just scared of losing our one talent? We have to love one another. And I want to, I, I have to always paraphrase love. Loving one another does not mean giving someone what they want. Swedenborg's very clear when he talks about the nature of loving the neighbor. Loving the neighbor is loving the good that is in the neighbor. A person who goes around hurting people, who asks not to go to jail, it is not loving to let them free because they will continue to hurt other people and have spiritual detriment over themselves. To love means we have to love the good and foster the good in each one of us. It means when we look at issues in our daily life over whether or not to buy a new car or a used car, whether or not to jaywalk, whether or not to eat styro off of styrofoam plates, lots of things. We have to be looking for the good in what we are doing, looking towards the good in the neighbor, and not just simply asking what is convenient, easy, or simple. The Lord on the cross said, forgive them, they know not what they do. He sought, and that's a very simple act of loving our neighbor, to forgive them, not for what not that their action was right, but to see that there is still good that can come from them, to help transform them. Good is in all people. Seek something in your enemy of value and goodness, whether it is Trump you hate, Hillary you hate, Bernie Sanders you hate, whoever it is that you spend your time hating, realize there is good in them. There is good in the person that you think that there is none. If you are incapable of finding good and value in another person, it is because your talent is in the ground. Seek to understand their fear, their hope. Make that person into a person. It's a tall order. It's hard. But finding God, love, and goodness in our neighbor is the entrance into joy. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Boston Society of the New Jerusalem's Church on the Hill podcast. If you liked what you hear, consider joining us at 140 Bowdoin Street, Boston, for more, or visit us on the web at churchonthehillboston.org.